Amen. My subject tonight, I want to preach on the thought, a spirit-filled church. If you're standing, greet your neighbor as you're seated. Greet your neighbor anyway. Tell them it's good to be in service with them tonight. In the Old Testament, there was a very significant place to the Jewish people, and that place was the tabernacle, or later it would be called the temple. It was a place where sacrifices were to be made to God. It was where sin was dealt with and where God met with His people. And it's interesting to me because at one point in Israel's history, there were not just one, but there was actually two tabernacles. And they were operating simultaneously. They were the tabernacle of Moses, which was set up at a place called Gibeon. And then there was the tabernacle of David, which was set up by none other than David in the city of Jerusalem. Now the reason that this happened, it's kind of a a lot of history, and I'll make it brief, but basically Israel thought it would be a good idea to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And they were so casual about the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, and they thought that that the ark would act almost like a good luck charm for them. They were treating it like some sort of talisman, if you will, that would give them favor against their enemies. But if you know the story, you know that that didn't happen. Obviously, God was not pleased with Israel and with their actions because despite the ark going into battle before them, which in times past had brought victory for them, Despite all of this, the Philistines slaughtered 30,000 Israelite troops, and they, the enemy, captured the Ark of the Covenant. This was not what they had in mind. This was not what they wanted to see happen, but it happened. Now, the Ark only spent about seven months under Philistine control, and it was not going well for the enemy, and they decided at this point to send it back to Israel because they had set it up in their temple in their place of worship, in front of their supposed God named Dagon. But the image of Dagon, it kept falling face down to the ground. And so they came in after the ark was there, and Dagon is laying on the floor, and they, and they set it back up. And then they come in the next day, and Dagon has fallen again. This image, this, the, the, this statue, and it's fallen, and now it's in pieces. And so they recognize that, that the God of the Israelites, that Jehovah is a true God, and He is a powerful God, and they recognize that that no other God can stand in the presence of Jehovah God. And they recognize that the ark was bringing a curse upon the Philistines, their people, and so they wanted it gone at whatever cost. It didn't matter. Just get rid of it. Can't stay here. And so off to Israel, the ark goes, and it finally ends up at a place called Kiriath-Jerim, located about eight miles west of Jerusalem. And it stayed in this place, Kiriath-Jerim, for roughly 70 years. During this time, when the ark was away from the tabernacle in another place in Kiriath-Jerim, the tabernacle of Moses, it, it kept on operating in Gibeon. There were sacrifices, there was incense that would be burned before the Lord and And there was washing at the laver, and all the priestly duties were being carried out as usual. 
However, it was all done without the ark, which again symbolizes the presence of God. It was upon this ark, it was upon the lid of this ark, which is called the mercy seat. It was there that, that the Hebrew word, the Shekinah presence of God dwelt. And it was gone. It was missing, but they kept on going regardless. Which kind of speaks to me the thought that what was happening during this time was ritual worship without God's Spirit among them. Now, now I know at other points in history the ark was missing, and that was because that it was, had been taken by enemies, and they didn't know where it was. So they didn't have a choice in the matter. But at this time in history, they did have a choice in the matter. It would have been relatively easy for them to go and obtain the ark and bring it back to the tabernacle. It was in their land. It was, it was no longer under enemy control. They could have done it, but they chose not to. They chose not to. Evidently, nobody cared enough to go get it. They were content to carry on with the routine of religion without the presence of God in their midst. And so toward the end of this 70-year span, David, he becomes king of Israel. And David, he was cut from a different cloth, you know. And David was one who was so passionate about God's presence and he was tired of not having the ark where it belonged. And so David made plans to bring it back. And, and this is where you perhaps can remember David leading that procession of people and the ark back toward Jerusalem. And, and he would walk six paces. We heard about it last Sunday morning from Pastor. And then on that seventh step, he, he would dance with all of his might and he would have an ox and a fattened calf sacrificed before the Lord as a burnt offering, just as worship to the Lord. The whole way back to Jerusalem, David did this. It was messy. It was uncouth. But it was for God. And he was passionate about God's presence and he wanted not just the symbolism of the ark, but he wanted God to know that above all else we want your presence. Whether, whether I'm showing you this by bringing the ark back or whether I'm showing you this by my praise and my burnt offerings, God, we want your presence among your people. But rather than take the ark back to the tabernacle of Moses, David, he does something interesting and, and kind of a little strange, frankly. But David, he sets up his own tabernacle. He names it, or at least somebody did, the Tabernacle of David. Aptly named, would you not agree? And there are several differences between these two tabernacles that were operating simultaneously. The Tabernacle of Moses in Gibeon and the Tabernacle of David in Jerusalem. The Tabernacle of Moses, it had three areas inside. There was the outer court. There was the holy place and there was the most holy place. The holy of holies where the ark normally resided. But the tabernacle of David, on the other hand, it only had one main area where the ark was placed. And David set it up. In Moses' tabernacle, only the high priest on the day of atonement once per year could go and stand before the ark. It was limited access. It was restricted, but... But in David's tabernacle, anybody could go and stand before the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody. There was unrestricted access to the presence of God. That's David's tabernacle. One of the main things that David's tabernacle is known for was the worship that took place there. The praise, the singing, the, 
the instrumentation. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was inspirational. And it all happened there at the tabernacle of David. We read in 1 Chronicles 25 and 7, there were 288 accomplished musicians. You know, I don't, you know we, we, we're thankful for all of our musicians and all of our singers, but, you know, in David's mind, this probably wouldn't have cut it, not in terms of talent, but in terms of quantity, you know. 288 accomplished musicians leading his music ministry. First Chronicles 23.5, there was 4,000 who praised the Lord with musical instruments. First Chronicles 9.33, it says that the musicians who were all prominent Levites, they, they actually lived at the temple. And they were exempt from other responsibilities since they were on duty at all hours. This, this was the tabernacle of David. This is what he established. It was a place of unrestricted access. It was a place of passionate praise and worship to God. Many of the Psalms were likely written during this time when the tabernacle of David was around. And they talk about many different forms of worship and praise, as you know. And we're familiar with many of them, but there are many scriptures about thanksgiving and rejoicing and hand clapping and shouting and dancing and lifting up hands and a whole bunch more. And this is all through the Psalms. And likely a lot of those Psalms were written during this time period when there was this tabernacle of David that was set up. I just want to tell you, I'll remind you tonight that that when we come into the house of the Lord and when we come into the presence of God, it should not be a strange thing for, for us to look around and see some hand clapping and some hand raising. And it should not be uncommon for us to hear some people shout and lift their voice in the presence of the Lord. Come on, it should not be an uncommon thing for apostolic people of God to get a little thankful and beside themselves and dance before the Lord every once in a while. Praise Him with the timbrel and with the dance. That's biblical. It's apostolic for, for, for saints to come out of a church service and, and for them to be so overcome by the presence of the Lord that people ask, what meaneth this? What in the world is going on with these folks? A little beside themselves. A little excited about what God has done for them. You know, that was the tenor and the tone of what David established. It was exuberant. It was passionate. It was praise. It was unfettered, unhindered access to the presence of God. And I tell you all of that tonight to say this. And that is that we have to decide which direction we are going to lean. Because there were two tabernacles there at the same time. And I don't know how it was. I don't know if people had a choice. I don't know if people decided, well, I like this kind of tabernacle or I like that kind of tabernacle. I don't really know all that. But we certainly have a choice. Which way are we going to lean? Are we going to be more like Moses' tabernacle? Are we going to be ritualistic, religious, restricted access, no praise and no presence of God? Or are we going to lean the other way and be like David's tabernacle, which was spontaneous songs of worship and unhindered access and exuberant praise, and most importantly, God's manifest presence because the Ark of the Covenant was there. 
which way are we going to lean? Are we going to be people that just are content and satisfied to just go through the motions and be like that priesthood? They were sprinkling blood on a mercy seat that wasn't there. Are we going to be ones that say, Jesus, you've done so much for me, I cannot tell it all, and so I've determined and I've settled in my spirit that I want to give you praise, I want to give you all of me, I want to be in your presence, Jesus. I wonder if you can let the Lord know right now in this moment, which way, which way do you determine in your own life to lean? Which, which one do you want? Do you want Moses, tabernacle, or do you want to be people that know what it is to be in the presence of the King of Kings, in the presence of the Lord of Lords? I wonder if you'd raise your voice with those hands for a moment and just let it be like David's tabernacle. Lift your praise to the Lord for a moment. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Jesus, you're worthy of praise. You're worthy of praise. You're worthy of praise. Amen. Amen. You see, in Acts chapter 15, James, the pastor of the New Testament church, he starts talking at one of the church council meetings, almost like a board meeting, you know, and he quotes the prophet Amos, and he says, Acts 15, 16, after this, the prophet speaking, God said, I will return, and I will build again the tabernacle, not of Moses, but in the last days, I will build again the tabernacle of David. This is New Testament stuff. And, and the prophet is speaking of what God intends to do in our day and age. To build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up so that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And all of the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. God said, I desire to set up a place where God's spirit and God's presence is unrestricted access. Where there is exuberant passion and praise and worship. And i, I got to tell you, this is not a sermon about praise and worship in and of itself. But, but if it were, I, I would just remind, is this a good idea? And it's apostolic and it's right and it's the will of God. It's the will of God for the people of God to sing, to shout, to run, to dance, and to give God all the glory. Somebody say amen. The church... God is building in the last days is not patterned after Moses' tabernacle. Ritual and no spirit. But the prophet and God said through this man of God, but it's patterned after David's tabernacle. Unrestricted praise and God's manifest spirit. I would say to us tonight that it is imperative that we get involved in what God desires to build. I don't want to pattern it after religious practices, but I want to pattern it after the Scripture and what God's desire would be. I want to be a church that's a lot like that, a lot like David's tabernacle where there's freedom of worship and, and a place that is passionate to make sure that we have the glory of God in our midst. I don't want, and I don't think you do either, mere ritual because mere ritual is a waste it's a waste. It's just motions. It's just traditions. And some traditions are good, but, but sometimes we can get encumbered 
and burdened by rituals just for ritual's sake. I want to see the Spirit of God among us, moving, flowing. See, Paul the Apostle, when he was mentoring young Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he tells Timothy and us that in the last days perilous times shall come. And I won't read his his exhaustive list, you know, but he said, men shall be lovers of their own selves and covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, and on and on he goes. He, he describes this, this perilous time in the last days, which that word perilous, it means a time in decline. That's what it means. And certainly when we look at our world today, we can say that in many ways morally and, and other ways as well, economically, whatever, things are in decline. Paul said it would happen, it would be so, but, but I want to focus on verse 5 because at the end of his list, Paul flips the script and he tells us that there will be people that have a form of godliness in the last days, but they deny the power thereof, and then he says, from such, turn away, because you've got to choose. You've got to choose which pattern you're after. Is it after the tabernacle of Moses or the tabernacle of David? Are you one that's just content to have a form of godliness? Or do you want the power of God in your midst? And you've got to turn away from one pattern to embrace the other. Now, now this, 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 this might mess with you a little bit, but Paul said that it would be Christians in the last days that would have a form of godliness. It would be Christians, it would be people that name the name of Jesus and claim to be believers, and they are believers, and and they would have an appearance of godliness, but it would possess no power. I don't believe that Paul is differentiating between saints and sinners in this passage. Verse 5 gives it away. He said they'll have a form of godliness. Sinners don't have a form of godliness. He's, He's not differentiating between, you know, the godly and the godless the saints and the sinners. I I believe that Paul is differentiating between two different types of believers. Two different types of tabernacles, if you will. These are not people with no regard for God. These are people who have a form of godliness. And it's as if Paul is giving us this dichotomy, presenting us a choice of what kind of believer we want to be. Do we want just a form? Or do we want fire? Do we want mere ritual or do we want relationship? I would frame it this way. Do we want Moses? Do we want David? Do we want the motions or do we want the manifest presence of God? I would ask it this way. Would we be concerned? Would you be concerned? Would I be concerned if the ark of God, as it were, was missing? Would we just carry on with business as usual or would we intentionally move to pursue the Spirit of God, the ark, until He was in our midst? That's that's an important question to ask. That's, That's an important thing to pause and ponder and just say, am I content with ritual, with motions, with traditions, or do I truly have a desire to have the presence of God moving In my life, in my church family, because I can be a catalyst for that. I can be a change agent that sees something like that begin to break out in a church congregation, in a community, in a city. You. So we say me. 
You can be a change agent like David that was not content to just see it sitting off in a corner somewhere but say, oh no, God, this is important to me. Having your presence in the house of God and in my life, it's important to me. So I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to go after it. I'm going to let you know, God, that I mean business and I'm serious about your presence. We have to choose. A.W. Tozer, he said this, and this is a strong statement, but I felt to quote him tonight. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, the global church, Christendom at large, he said 95% of what we do would go on, and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop, and everybody would know the difference. Can I just tell us tonight, I'm so thankful that this morning as we gathered and as we concluded service, I am really grateful that we took some time at the end of our service this morning and we paused long enough to linger in the presence of God and to raise our hands and to pray and seek God and say, God, would you please pour out your spirit here? Lord, would you, would you please come by this place and, and visit us with a manifestation of your glory? We need more of that, not less. We need people that are passionate enough to pause and to pray and say, God, I mean business. I want this. I'm hungry for this. And push and pursue Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can you pause for a moment and just pray with me? Can you raise your hand for a moment? I feel the Holy Ghost here challenging and, and tugging at somebody's heart and say, and say, hey, hey, I, I don't want just more of the same. I want your power. I want your presence, Lord. Hallelujah. 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 In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. I believe that God desires to pour out the Holy Ghost, not just in services when the Holy Ghost is the subject of the sermon. I believe that God can do miracles even when we're not preaching about or talking about miracles. I believe if the body of Christ and if a believer just like you or I, if we could get a hold of this and say, hey, I'm, a, I'm an able minister of the New Testament. I can move and flow in the Holy Ghost. Can I, I can lay hands on the sick and they can recover. And I can pray the prayer of faith and I can make a difference. And we could turn our world upside down. It is not relegated to the paid professional ministry. Paul talks about the five-fold ministry and talks about apostles and prophets and pastors, evangelists, teachers, and, and he tells us that they are for their gift from God for the body of Christ. They are given for the perfecting of the saints to do the work of ministry. And many of you would know this, but that is not to say that the fivefold ministry is given to do all the work of ministry. No, no, no. The fivefold ministry and leadership and your pastors and leaders in the body of Christ, they are given as a gift to equip you so that you can do ministry, so that you can pray, so that you can lay hands on folks and believe with them to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so when you come to church, it gives it a whole new tone. It gives it a whole new purpose. You're not coming just to get saved again. To get everything right from this week. No, no, no. You're coming on purpose with intention to operate, to flow, and to be a blessing to somebody else. That's why we come to church. Not to 
be blessed exclusively, but to be a blessing. Can I tell you that it's an even greater blessing to yourself when you're a blessing to somebody else? Because God can meet your needs as you're praying for somebody else's needs. And God can consume you with a, with a fire of the Holy Ghost as you're praying with somebody else to receive the Holy Ghost. We've got to come on purpose. We've got to come on purpose. The book of Acts, church, I'll leave you with a couple more things and we're going to pray tonight. You ready to pray? I want to put this into practice tonight. The book of Acts Church, it thrived from the very beginning. For the first five years of its existence, we, we see explosive growth. 3,000 people in Acts 2.41. 5,000 men in Acts 4 and 4. Multitudes of men and women, Acts 5.14. They, they struggled to get a number, and so they just said multitudes. It's growing, leaps and bounds. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 7 the Bible says that the number of disciples multiplied greatly. We move from addition now to multiplication. Things are happening. Everyone say, things are happening. And up to now, this is only in Jerusalem. So this is, this is one city. This is amazing. The church is growing. But it was not the will of God for there to only be a church in Jerusalem. He desired that they would witness in Jerusalem, yes, but also in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that. And none of this had happened yet except for Jerusalem. And so they've got like one-fourth of the command. They've got Jerusalem and things are happening in Jerusalem, but Judea, the region, Samaria, across cultural boundary, and then the uttermost part of the earth, none of that has happened yet. And so God decides to push His people out of their comfort zone and he uses adversity to do so. And in Acts chapter 6, one of the believers named Stephen, he's put in prison. He's put on trial. And then Acts 7 concludes with his death. He is the first martyr of the church. He is killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. And so we turn to Acts chapter 8. And if you have your Bibles, uh, whether that's analog or digital, I hope you charged your Bible tonight. Tough crowd tonight, tough crowd. But if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to camp here for a little while. The Bible says that Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. This sounds good. This is what Jesus told them to do. And it's happening, whether they like the way it's happening or not. Except the apostles. So the, the 12 apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. Verse 4. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad, they went everywhere preaching the word. And so yes, in Judea. Yes, in Samaria. Things are now moving beyond the borders of Jerusalem. And this is good. It's the will of God. And then Philip, he went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ unto them. You know, Philip was just crazy enough to say, well, Jesus said we should preach in Samaria. Nobody has yet, so here I go. The first one, not one of the 12 apostles, Philip. And he goes and he preaches Christ. And the people with one accord, they gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And unclean spirits, verse 7, crying with a loud voice, they came out of many that were possessed with them, and many were taken with palsies, and they... Uh, and, and those that were lame were healed. 
And there was great joy in the city. Now, Philip, he's a pretty ordinary guy, you know. But he is known as an evangelist. He's Philip the evangelist in your Bible. And uh, he is an evangelist in the truest sense of the word. And I don't mean any disrespect to any modern-day evangelist, but he was not one that just went around preaching to saints. He, he went as a herald proclaiming the gospel to sinners. And he is first introduced in Acts chapter 6 when he is chosen as one of those seven deacons that, that were chosen to wait tables and, and to take care of the needs of the Christian community in Jerusalem. He wasn't one of the apostles. He wasn't a high-up leader. He was someone who waited tables and he served. He was a servant, which is encouraging to me because it tells me that God can use ordinary people to do amazing things. So Philip preaches Christ and, and the results, we read them. There was miracles, verse 6. Demons and evil spirits were cast out of the people, verse 7. Paralytics and lame people were healed, also verse 7. And there was great joy in the city. These people heard the word. They saw and experienced miracles. Evil spirits were cast out. Sick people were healed. Everybody had joy. Things are happening. But God wasn't done. Let me say, God wasn't done. You see, Acts chapter 8, this is one of those passages that if you are going to preach the gospel yourself, you've got to have a handle on Acts chapter 8. There's, there's several passages that you need to be you know, knowledgeable about, but Acts chapter 8, it's a significant one because there are some important lessons we learn in Acts chapter 8. Because it teaches us that all of these things, miracles and, and, and you know, exorcisms, demons being cast out, and healings and miracles and joy, all of these things, it's not the same thing as obeying the gospel. It's not the same thing as being saved. It's not. Because Acts chapter 12 tells us, after all of these things have happened, but when they believed Philip, when they believed his, him preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, and when they believed the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Let me summarize this verse for us tonight. When they believed, they were baptized. When they believed, they were baptized. Because God wasn't done just with miracles and signs and wonders and joy and, and, and believing. God wasn't done. They were baptized. And it is interesting to me, as you study the book of Acts, and you will find that there are, and I've made this statement in this pulpit before, but I'll say it again, there are ten notable conversions in the book of Acts. There's thousands that were saved, but you can study ten conversion accounts in the book of Acts. There's the day of Pentecost believers, and there's the believers in Samaria like we're talking about tonight. There's Simon the sorcerer, the Ethiopian eunuch. There's Saul on the Damascus road. There's Cornelius' household. There's Lydia of Philippi. There's the Philippian jailer and his family. There's the Corinthians in Acts chapter 18, and there's the Ephesian believers in Acts chapter 19. So, so 10, and I don't expect you to remember all those 10, so it's okay. This is on YouTube. You can watch it later. There's ten, and as you study them, you will recognize that not every account mentions every element of salvation. You will note that not every account mentions repentance. In fact, repentance is one of the most scarcely used terms, you know, out of all the things that we might go to, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues, 
believing faith. Repentance is actually scarcely used. I don't think anybody in the room would argue that that makes it unessential or not important. Not everyone mentions repentance. Not everyone mentions receiving the Spirit. Not everyone even mentions believing. But nobody would argue, well, I guess, I guess we don't need to believe because here's somebody that got saved and it doesn't say they believed. Because we interpret Scripture by Scripture. And we look to places like Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please God. And so we understand, well, they must have believed, it's just not explicitly stated. You following me? But here's something that's interesting to me. All ten conversions mention baptism. Every single one. You study it, you read it, every single one mentions baptism. Because I think God wanted us to know. I, I think God was just trying to, to, to make it very concrete and very sure that, that it is essential, it's important, and it will always accompany salvation. The, the, the act of being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It's always there. You will not find a believer in your Bible who was not baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we take very seriously the words of Jesus, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned, meaning that if you stop at belief and you say, well, I can't do that. If you stop right there, then you've already determined your fate. But if you believe and then you take a step beyond that and you're baptized, salvation proceeds after baptism. And many in Christendom, unfortunately, they, they preach a false gospel and they preach the false doctrine that you can believe and be saved. And then if you feel like it or if you get around to it, you can be baptized. They misinterpret and misquote Jesus and they would make it to, as if he would say, he that believeth and is saved shall be baptized. That's not what he said. He that believeth and is saved shall be baptized, you know, if, if grandma's in town and if the stars align and all the family can get together. And that is not the biblical pattern of baptism. Baptism is not just going public for Jesus. Baptism is an essential component of being saved and obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder if I have a witness in the house that still believes that except a man be born of water except a man be born of water, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so the Samaritans are baptized. Is this all right tonight? And so many would have stopped right there thinking that the work of salvation was complete, but, but not that early church. Not that early church. The work of salvation was not done. Because there was one thing that they were looking for. One thing that Philip, I don't know if anybody else had, had kind of joined him up to this point. But certainly Philip, there was something that he was looking for. Really, that he was looking for a sound. Whoever was there, whatever leadership was there working with Philip at this point, they were waiting to hear a sound from heaven. Just like it happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Acts 8.14, now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. You remember, verse 1 tells us that the apostles, they had remained in Jerusalem and they get wind of this Samaritan revival and they say, we need to go down there because they've received the word of God. Something is happening 
they, they've believed and they've been baptized, and this is so good, but we're going to go down there. And the Bible says there's a reason for their travel. Who, when they were come down, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. And then Luke, the author, the, the writer, I should say, of the book of Acts, he, in parentheses, he, he inserts in verse 16, for as yet was fallen upon none of them. The Holy Ghost had not fallen upon any of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I, I don't know how, how much more clear a passage of Scripture could make it for us tonight. You will note that the first century church didn't believe that anybody had received the Holy Ghost just because they had believed. They didn't believe that. That is not a doctrine that they taught, preached, or believed in the first century. Because those Samaritans had all believed. They had all been baptized. Some people will point, you know, to the baptism of Jesus. He came up out of the water. The Spirit descended like a dove. And, and, and they, they would say, well, that just means it's automatic. Evidently not. Because the Samaritans were baptized. But Luke said they had not received. The Holy Ghost had not yet fallen on any of them. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Some had even been healed. The Bible says that all of them had joy, but the Bible is clear that they had not received the Holy Ghost. You will note with me, those are the things that the early church didn't believe. But here's what the early church did believe. They did believe that the baptism of the Holy Ghost was absolutely essential to salvation. That's why the apostles, they made the trip from Jerusalem to Samaria during a time when they probably should have been in hiding because there was great persecution against the church and there would have been a target on the leadership of the church. But they said there are some things that are worth the risk. It's worth us leaving this place of hiding and comfort to go to a place where there are believers. They've believed and they've been healed and there's joy. They've even been baptized, but they've not received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And this is a promise that God has for them too. I need a church that's willing to preach with me for a few moments tonight. It is worth it to go. It's worth it to preach it that way and to teach it the way the Bible says. You must receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if that same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if it dwell in you, it will quicken your mortal bodies. That means that on rapture day, the thing that is going to transition you from mortality to immortality, it's the Spirit of God that is residing within you. And so if you get to rapture day and you've not been filled with the gift, the glorious gift of the Holy Ghost. Come on, this is essential. It's important. It's worth taking time on a Sunday night to remind us that it's important and it's still worth preaching about and it's still worth reaching for and praying after and seeking after. Because if we bring people in and we preach to them until we're blue in the face, but we never pray with them that they will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, then we're not fulfilling our role as an apostolic church. Peter and John inconvenienced themselves and they went and they prayed for them. Philip and the apostles, they were so persuaded that receiving the Holy Ghost was a non-negotiable. They were not content to have everything else in order, 
but then miss out on the miracle of spirit baptism. They were not content to have just form, but then no fire present. They were not content with that. And they made up in their minds that they were going to be like David, you know? Like that tabernacle of David. That God said, I'm going to set it up like that. So that the residue of men might seek the Lord. So that the Gentiles might have relationship with me. And come in covenant with me. I want a church like that. Where the Spirit of God is present. So they laid their hands on them. And they received the Holy Ghost. Just like it happened on the day of Pentecost. Just like it's been happening in Jerusalem for about five years, it happened for the Samaritans too. Can I teach for a couple more minutes here? I'm going to come in for a close soon. I know I'm kind of like straddling the line, preaching, teaching. I don't know, but it's okay, I hope. Here's a question. How did they know? How, how did they know? The Bible says that they received the Holy Ghost. How did they know that they received the Spirit? It's a fair question because everything else that is often associated with receiving the Spirit has already happened to these Samaritans. In Christendom, people think, well, if I believe, I've received the Spirit. If I have felt the presence of God, I've received the Spirit. If I've been baptized, I've received the Spirit. But all of this has already happened. And the Bible is very clear that it has not happened. So how... Did the apostles and Philip and whatever other leadership was there, how did they know that they had received the Spirit of God? Well, there evidently was some sort of outward sign. It was something visible enough that Simon the sorcerer, in the same chapter, he tries to buy the power from the apostles to lay hands on people that they might receive the Holy Ghost. There was some sort of an outward sign because Simon, too, wanted to be able to, to have this ability I think it's interesting. Simon did not ask for the power to do any of the other miracles. He didn't ask for the power to make paralyzed people have use of their legs again. He didn't ask for the power to cast out demons. He didn't ask for any of that. Simon said, I'm willing to pay money for this power because he recognized that praying with folks that they might receive the Holy Ghost is the greatest miracle that could ever take place in a person's life. Somebody receiving the Spirit of God is the greatest miracle that anybody could ever experience. The greatest miracle. Somebody say the greatest miracle. What did he observe that day that made him want this power so much? Well, it's speaking in tongues. And the critic would say, well, it doesn't say they spoke in tongues. Well, it doesn't say that they repented either. So we're going to go with that standard. We have to say that repentance is not essential to be saved. It is obvious, and any theologian, any Bible lover or Bible student would have to admit that there was a sign, and it must have been speaking in tongues just like it happened in Acts 2, just like it will soon happen in Cornelius' household. They knew that the Holy Ghost had fallen upon them, for they heard them speak with tongues. Just the same way it will happen for the Ephesian believers in Acts chapter 19. They spoke with tongues and they prophesied. It must have been this because this is the New Testament pattern. And so we see from this passage that receiving the Spirit is essential. And it is a unique experience. It's separate from believing it's separate from repentance. It's separate from baptism, from being healed, feeling God, or feeling joy. I want to be a church like that. I want to be a spirit-filled 
church. I think we ought to be willing to do whatever it takes, to go to whatever length necessary to make sure that we have the Spirit of God among us. If you need me to go to Kiriath-Jerim and haul that ark back on the priest's shoulders and dance every seven paces and sacrifice before the Lord, I'll do it. If you need me to leave the comfort of Jerusalem and go down to Samaria and help the believers there and pray for them that they might receive the Spirit, I'll do it. If you need us to pray and to seek God in an altar call and come to pre-service prayer and come and seek God. I'll do it because I want it. I'll go to any length to have it. I want to be a church like that. I want to be a spirit-filled church. Come on, David was persuaded it was worth pursuing God's spirit. He had that ark carried in to Jerusalem. Philip and the apostles, they were persuaded it was worth it for the spirit to be poured out in the Samaritan church. Because if we have everything else in place, but we aren't seeing people being baptized in the Holy Ghost, then we need to stop up and we need to say, "This, this ritualism is not working for me anymore. And these motions are not cutting it for me anymore. I want the power and the presence of God at work in our midst. Because if we have everything else but we don't have the Spirit of God, then we need to create a little bit of space. And we need to take some time and get things in order and make sure that we too are a Spirit-filled church. Music, come join me. I'm going to conclude. Thank you for the time. I know I've been a little lengthy tonight. But as I close, go with me for a few moments to Ezekiel's vision. A valley full of dry bones. In this vision, it takes place in Ezekiel chapter 37. You can read the passage later, the first ten verses in particular. But in this vision, God brings the prophet to a place that seems hopeless. Seems like nothing could help. It's a valley full of bones, and the Bible says that they were very dry. These aren't, these aren't you know, the, the bones of bodies that had just passed away recently. They've been there a long time. And there's not been any life in them for a long time. But God brings the prophet to a place like this because God wants the prophet to see potential in what appears to be dry and dead. And to help Ezekiel see the See, past the barrenness, God probes the prophet with this pointed question. And he says, son of man, can these bones live? Now, now you've got to put yourself in Ezekiel's shoes. And you have to imagine being the prophet standing in front of these dry bones. What on earth? What, what on earth could a person do to possibly rectify this situation? What, what could a man like Ezekiel as Mighty, mightily used as he was, what could he do to make a difference in these bones? What could he do to bring them back to life? So here's a question. What is God's remedy for barren bones? Well, if you read Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 4, the first thing that God says to Ezekiel is prophesy to the bones. God's first line of instruction to Ezekiel was speak the bones. Speak to those that need to be brought back to life. Do that first. Speak God's word. 
speak it in faith. So Ezekiel did this, and as Ezekiel began to, to preach, you know, to preach to these bones, God's word, it brought about order from chaos. And what was little more than just a heap of dry, disheveled bones was now starting to come together, and things were starting to take shape bone to bone, sinews and flesh, and skin begins to cover it all. It's, it's an amazing miracle of God. A miracle is taking place in this valley of dry bones. And at the end of it all, what had been a mess was now a masterpiece as, as a fitly framed army was there. That, my friends, brothers and sisters, is the power of the preached Word of God. Ezekiel preached to the bones. He prophesied to the bones. And as the Word of God was declared, things started coming together. Miracles started happening. All because the man of God preached the Word of God to the dry bones. That's the power of the preached Word of God. And as I read Ezekiel 37, it kind of makes me think about Philip preaching to those Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. Because they respond to the preaching and good things are happening bone to bone as it were sinews and flesh and skin and, and things start to come together in the, in the lives of the Samaritans but the work was not complete yet Ezekiel preaching to the bones has brought miraculous results but God is not done just because of the miraculous just at the miraculous a pile of dry bones it's not favorable, but is a pile of lifeless bodies much better? That's a good question. From the chaos, order has come. But is mere order, is that the ultimate goal? Is it the ultimate goal just to see people experience the miraculous? Is it, is it the goal just to see li people's lives blessed by the principles and the preaching of the Word of God. Because I'll tell you, it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. If you live according to the Word of God and the principles in the Bible, you will be blessed. Things will start coming together. Things are going to take shape in your life. But is that the ultimate goal? Because you can have things completely fitly framed and in order. You can have all kinds of form. But if you don't have the breath, then it doesn't matter because you're still going to walk away and there's still going to be no life. Ezekiel preaching did great things, but God was not done. And even the prophet recognizes that there's something off because in Ezekiel 37 verse 8, he said, When I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon, up upon them and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. There was no breath there. See, the culmination of the miracle for Ezekiel. It happened when he shifted his focus from prophesying to the bones and he started prophesying to the wind. Because what this valley ultimately needed and what our city ultimately needs and what every individual you come in contact with needs wasn't just orderliness. It wasn't just the miraculous. It, just, it wasn't just the Word of God bringing blessing. It wasn't just orderly, lifeless bodies. It needed an army that had come to life with the breath 
of God. And so God said to the prophet Ezekiel, he said, hey, you need to change your focus and, and shift your focus from this plane and lift your eyes and start prophesying on this plane. And he said in verse 9, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath. Breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived. And they lived and they stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. Oh, hallelujah. This is just like Acts chapter 8. Lots has happened, but God wasn't done because there was no breath there. There was no breath in Samaria until Peter and John went and they prayed that they might receive the Holy Ghost. I want to be a church like that. I don't just want fitly framed forms. I don't want just the form of godliness. I want the power. I want the fire. I want the breath of God. I need, I want, I desire the Spirit of God. I want to be a church like that. I want to be a Spirit-filled church. Come on, if that's what you desire, if that's your heart's cry, I wonder if you would stand to your feet right now and if you would shoot your voice and if you would shoot your hands in the air and say, God, this is what I want. This is what we need, God. We need the presence and the power of God. I want us to do we're going to close this service this way if you have faith to believe that God still does a work like that in the 21st century and it's not just relegated to the Bible in the first century can you step out of where you're standing right now leave your seat and come around this front and say I believe that God can still pour out the Holy Ghost I still believe that God desires to do what he did in Acts 8 for the Samaritans I believe that God can do it today time for people to step out of where they're standing right now. Come to this. If you've got faith, if you want that, if you have a hunger for that, would you step out and just come to this front, get as close as you can. If you need to slip into an aisle up front, that's fine. Now here's a second appeal for this altar call tonight. And maybe you're already here and that's wonderful. But if you are here in this sanctuary and you have never received the Holy Ghost, with the evidence, the sign of speaking in an unknown language, it's an unknown tongue, as the Spirit of God gives you the ability and you want that experience. It's in the Word of God and it's for us today. If that's your desire, or if you'd like to be refilled and refreshed and renewed, I would also invite you to come around this front because there's a group of people here that have faith to believe that it can happen and that it will happen tonight. Now, if you've never received the Spirit of God, just listen for one moment if you would. Here's what we're going to do. This is something that only God can do. It's not me 
in a microphone that makes this happen. It's not a preacher, a pastor, a leader. It's, nothing, it's none of that. This is only something that God can do. But if we will repent and if we'll turn our lives to God, if we'll do what we know to do, and then maybe tonight I would encourage you, if you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, if you've never gone down in the water and they've said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I would, I would not leave this sanctuary tonight until you were baptized in that nearly 100-degree tank. It's warm. It's wonderful. <laughs> but if we'll do what we know to do, God will do what only He can do. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to, in a moment, we're going to lift our hands together. The Bible says that the Lord inhabits. He lives in praise. And so we're just going to raise our hands and we're going to praise the Lord together. If you've never repented of your sin, it's important that you do that first. You need to pause and you need to say, Lord, I'm turning from my life and I'm going your way. But if you've repented of your sins and you have a desire to follow God, that's all it takes. I wonder if we can take a hold of somebody near us. I think it's important that we pray one for another, one with another. If you've got faith to believe it, if you see somebody that's come forward and they're praying and it looks like they might be seeking the Holy Ghost, I wonder if we can just begin to raise our hands together and lift our voices together and lift our praise to the Lord. And as we lift our voices with praise, you'll begin to feel that the Lord begin to take over your tongue. And I encourage you to let that river of life flow. Jesus said it's a river of living water. It's a spring springing up to life everlasting. So in the name of Jesus, God, tonight we've come with a hunger, with a desire in our hearts for that to be present in our church, for that to be a reality at CCC. God, we hunger to be a spirit-filled church. But God, not just collectively, I don't want to miss the miracle of somebody individually tonight. I pray that you'd confirm your word with signs following. Pour out your spirit tonight in the name of Jesus. Ministers, move if you would through this altar and help us pray. Help us find folks and pray with them that they might receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Church family, let's be the body of Christ tonight. Let's operate and flow in the Holy Ghost and believe God for that kind of work today.